I bring you greetings from the Diocese of Olympia, which uh, most people don't know where that is. Uh, it's Seattle, basically, uh, the western third of Washington State, uh, the moist part of the state. Up there we say we don't tan, we rust. And uh, I've been there long enough to know that the state flower is mildew, so. Uh, it is really good uh, to be with you today. Trinity is a very special place to my wife, Marty, and me. We were married at this altar 35 years ago, and it is here in a very real sense that my vocation as a priest of the church began as we were youth directors, for as my life goes by, I realize a very short period of time, just a few years, but those years were filled with so many good things. We have memories of this place that are forever, friends that are forever, a family of youth who now that we are older, we realize are not that much younger than us, but their presence in our lives has been so important. This place and the people who live in it have formed us in so many profound and good ways. So let me not let this day go by without saying thank you for that and for being here to keep the legacy going. And I want to thank especially the dean who played such a prominent role in all that of back then, being on the Commission on Ministry when I went through that, and being a constant cheerleader, coach, mentor for me over the years. I did uh, peruse your website, and I was really intrigued by his Tequila Sunrise sermon of a few weeks ago, <coughs> because uh, one of the best sermons I ever heard for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that I can actually remember it, was one of Chris Keller's sermons from this pulpit, I believe, when he was riffing off of Credence Clearwater Revival's Bad Moon Rising. I just thought that was so cool. So you're wise to have him here in this period of your life, and I know it'll be sad to have him go. I understand his tradition on Heritage Sunday is to invite back some of those who are considered important and influential to the history of Trinity and Marty and I are deeply honored to be considered among such company. And finally, I want to thank your bishop, a dear friend and colleague both here while we were priests together in this diocese and now in the House of Bishops. He's a vital part of our collective life in the church, and I very much enjoy working with him there. In short, it is a great honor to be asked to preach the gospel on this day with all of you in this place. Before I go on, I should also bring greetings from Steve and Kathy Thomason, who you also raised, who happens to be my dean, and he is not on the market for anybody <laughs> going after him. <clears throat> so it may be odd, uh, but today I want to start with the story of a French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. For several years, Blondin made a regular scene of crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. People from both Canada and America would come from miles away to see these great feats. He walked across 160 feet above the falls many times, each time with a different daring feat, once in a sack, once on stilts, once on a bicycle, once in the dark and blindfolded, and one time he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet on the middle of the rope and then lowered it for the passengers in the Maid of Mist tour boat just below. On one of his walks, a large crowd gathered and the buzz of excitement ran along both sides of the riverbank. The crowd was mesmerized as Blondin carefully walked across one dangerous step after another, pushing a wheelbarrow, holding a sack of potatoes. 
Upon reaching the other side, the crowd went crazy with applause. Hearing this, Blondin suddenly stopped and addressed his audience. Do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And the crowd went wild, enthusiastically yelling, yes, you are the greatest tightrope walker in the world. We believe, we believe. And so he said, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> Crickets. The enthusiasm was gone. On that day, he got no takers. Well, really, how much do you believe? Which brings me to the gospel today. There are many gospels where we should laugh out loud. This is one of them. I saw you laughing right back there. He laughed, and he, you should laugh at this. It would be easy to hear it and think that the message is just ask God and just don't stop asking, and eventually God will come through. Deus ex machina, just jerk God's chain and up and God will come through for you. Essentially, you might say you can actually wear God down. You can actually nag God into doing what you need God to do. That reading, that take on this, if you will, is fraught with problems, theological, psychological, human. If this is the case, then one might say you can actually get God's attention, which leads to a new problem, that being that God can be actually not paying attention. You see, just loads of problems. We get there by jumping to that one simple conclusion with all of this, and that is we make in this story the judge to be God. And if we do that, it's hard not to get right to those assumptions I just laid out. And it's natural. We always place God in one of the characters and us in one. And quite frankly, I think that is exactly what we're supposed to do with many of the parables. But maybe not with this one. I believe at least the first time I heard it, it was C.S. Lewis who wrote that our prayers are not for God, they're for us. I'm sure he is not the first one who ever said it, but I find it to ring true to the God I know. God wants us to pray to her so that we might hear ourselves, so that we might move ourselves, so that we might focus ourselves. Our faith is and should be that God will be with us in all of this, but it will take us to live it out. I would suggest that the courtroom scene that Jesus paints for us today is actually a scene that's played out in total inside each of us all the time. We are the judge. We are the woman that comes to the judge incessantly asking for the same thing. And maybe most importantly, we're the ones that just stand by and watch. My focus on this gospel, and I believe the real point of it in the first place, is the haunting question Jesus ends with, which is the real point, I think. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I've come to believe this parable is about our allegiance, and especially a question to us perhaps, where is our primary allegiance in this life? You've heard a lot of good sermons lately about that. In what and or who do we have our hope? A few years ago, while leading the Stations of the Cross, the Via Della Rosa through the streets of Jerusalem, we rounded the corner to the Ninth Station, which is right in front of the Coptic Monastery. 
and at that station a banner was strung across the narrow street. I had never seen it there before. The banner had on it those 21 Coptic Christian men, all in orange suits, kneeling on the beach, all of them about to be beheaded by ISIS. And it just stopped me in my tracks. The ninth station, Jesus Falls, the third time. Underneath the banner were the words, like Jesus, these men went to their deaths for their faith. I don't believe we have to do that to prove it. But the question today perhaps is, would we? We can scream, we believe, but would we get into the wheelbarrow? Now that's weighty stuff, all of that, but I have to tell you what I was most ashamed of and thinking of at that station of the cross that day after I got over my shock of the photo was a much smaller thing, but one I was convicted about. I was thinking about a tattoo I had just gotten in Jerusalem by the famous tattoo artist Razuk. It was my first tattoo, a big commitment. Ended up making my son really angry because for years we forbade him to get a tattoo and yet I beat him to it. Turns out it's quite a tradition for Christians to get a tattoo in Jerusalem. Goes back thousands of years. Razuk's family has all, all done it for 800 years. When Razuk asked me where I wanted it, I told him I wanted it right here because I was thinking I can cover it up with a short sleeve shirt. If tattoos offend somebody, I can just cover it up. I don't have to reveal it. That's what I was thinking about, standing at that ninth station, looking at those men kneeling on the beach, their lives about to end because of their cross. In fact, in the video where they were finally murdered, the one speaking called them with derision, the people of the cross. They gave their lives for their cross, and I wanted to hide mine. Just how much do I really believe? That's what was running through my mind that day at that ninth station. Razuk had explained to me that Coptic Christians almost to a person have tattoo crosses on them for identity and as a sign of their professing faith, just as those 21 Coptic Christian construction workers did. Tattoos are done as early as two months old. They are for security, too, in a country where Christians are a marked minority. They actually use the tattoos for safe entrance into church. You really can't cover it up, a tattoo. It's there. A tattoo's for real and for life. I really resonate with Jimmy Buffett's song that describes a tattoo as a permanent reminder of a temporary feeling. And indeed, it can be that. For the whole year, after turning that corner at that ninth station, I thought about that banner and my tattoo. So the next year, when I went to see Razuk, I asked for a cross, and this time, put it right there where you can see it, but even more where I can see it. I can't really see this one. Up here, I can easily forget about it. In essence, I can hide what I say I profess. Like I said, a very small thing compared to giving your life. 
But climbing into that wheelbarrow often takes time. We're probably not going to say yes that first day, just like the judge in this story doesn't say yes. When we are baptized, when we sign up to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we get tattooed with a cross, traced in oil on our foreheads, and we answer some radical questions with radical answers, maybe we could say even dangerous ones. Those baptismal vows are calls to engage, to risk, to love in ways this world may find odd and even offensive. They are vows which profess belief in words. But when we walk away from the font and go back to life, that's when we have to put those words, that belief, into action. It's then that we are really asking a sense, are you ready to get in the wheelbarrow? That is exactly to me what Jesus means when he asks, and yet, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Will he find people living out those vows? Will he find people living with that baptismal cross indelibly tattooed on their foreheads for the world to see? Although no one got into the wheelbarrow that day, I relayed to you earlier, in August of 1859, Blondin's manager, Harry Cocord, did agree to climb onto Blondin's back as he traversed the falls. But before he climbed on his back, Blondin gave Cocord some stern instructions. I offer them as a modern-day parable of how God might hold us, carry us, walk with us on all the tightropes of our lives. Blondin said to Cocord, look up, Harry, never down. While you're on this rope, you are no longer Cocord. You are Blondin. You and I are one. Until we're on the other side, you are part of me, body, mind, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both fall to our death. However, if you're part of me, body, mind, and soul, you and I will make it to the other side. And they did. My sisters and brothers, I've offered these words to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.